Well, Jesus is called lots of things in this chapter. Lord, a man under authority and with authority. He's called the great prophet. He's called the one who was to come. He's called the son of man. He's called teacher. He's even called a glutton and a drunkard. (laughs) But here's the name I love the most. It's there at the end of verse 34. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. The ironic thing is it's said by his critics and it's meant as an insult. But think about it for a moment and I think you'll agree with me. What a precious description. What a precious name for Jesus. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's precious because if we're honest, we are all sinners. We all fail to keep our own standards of behaviour and speech and thought let alone keeping God's standards. Each of us this past week, even today, have ignored God and done things our way. Not just doing wrong things, but we've failed to do and say and think the good things we might have. We've failed to meet God's just and right standards. And we've hurt people we love. We've been impatient and unfair, and selfish, and disinterested. And perhaps those people have been upset with us. Our closest relationships perhaps have been damaged. And it hurts with broken, to have broken friendships, doesn't it? Uh, because we want to know people and we want to be known. Now if that's you, uh, it's me, uh, then listen well, because Jesus is a friend of sinners. He welcomes, he includes, he prioritises and accepts sinners. He's not interested in those who are worthy, the efficient, effective and good. He has come for the least, for the lost and for the last. He's interested in the hopeless, not the heroes. The failures, not the front runners. The losers, not the leaders. In fact, Jesus says people like that are great. They're important, valued, worthwhile. They're not just good, they're great. They're greater than any of the Old Testament heroes. They're greater than Abraham or Moses or David or even John the Baptist. Have a look there in verse 28. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that's what Jesus thinks of the least. That's what he thinks of outsiders, those who are unworthy and desperate. Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Let me show you from this chapter. First, uh, we meet a Gentile, a Roman centurion. Uh, He has authority over a group of men. He's wealthy, he's generous, he's probably a follower of God... He'd even paid for the Capernaum synagogue to be built. 
And so one, when one of, his friends, uh, one of his servants was dying, he heard that Jesus was nearby and the elders were quick to recommend him. Uh, look there in verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Do you hear what they're saying? He's a good man. He deserves favour from Jesus. Let him move to the front of the queue. But the man himself has different ideas. Because when he hears that Jesus is actually coming to his house, he sends a message to stop him. Verse 6. Lord, don't trouble yourself and listen to his reason. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. You see, this guy sees things clearly. Other people see the outside. They think he's worthy because he does good things. But he knows his heart. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're moral, ethical. People have a high opinion of you. But you know the truth. You would die of embarrassment if people found out your thoughts or what you do in secret. This centurion knows that underneath the mask of respectability, there is something rotten in his life. He's like an apple that's crisp on the outside, but is soft and brown in the middle. His generosity, his achievements, his abilities, they all hide the fact that he knows he's sinful, that he deserves nothing from God. But that's not bad news at all. In fact, he's really the closest of all to Jesus because he doesn't just see himself clearly, he actually sees Jesus clearly as well. Uh, Look at the end of verse 7. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says to Jesus, all you have to say, all you have to do is say the word. Now, what's his point? He recognises authority. As an army officer, he gives a command and it is obeyed. For a Roman soldier to disobey, it was death. And he sees the same in Jesus. He sees that Jesus is a man with authority, the right to control. It would only take a word from Jesus and his servant will be healed. But not only that, the centurion is someone who has been given authority from those above him. Now here's where his real perceptiveness comes. He sees the same in Jesus, that Jesus too is under authority. Jesus is not just a powerful man, he's doing what his heavenly father has authorised him to do, empowered him to do. an amazing insight and Jesus is amazed at his faith verse 9 that he can see clearly who Jesus is and he's even more amazed that it comes from a Gentile 
Someone who is outside God's original people, the Jews. Someone who is at the back of the line as far as a privilege of knowing God. Verse 9, have a look. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And what happens? Well, verse 10, it's interesting the way Luke describes it because Jesus actually has even more authority than the soldier recognises. The soldier says, say the word, and he'll be healed. But Jesus doesn't even need to say the word. Have a look at verse 10. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. (laughs) It seems like Jesus just thought, at least the way Luke describes it, uh, Jesus thinks and the servant is healed. Here we have a worthless Gentile. He says it himself. But he sees who Jesus is. He sees that he is least in the kingdom of God, but he's great in God's eyes. Jesus loves the last. Uh, Well, next, we see Jesus loving the least, uh, a widow. Uh, But more than a widow, she's a childless widow. She's lost her son, her only family, her only means of support. She is alone in the world. No husband, no son. She's faced with poverty. As Jesus enters the town, he comes across a funeral procession. uh, And verse 13 When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Don't you feel the same when you see despair and hopelessness and loneliness and you just wish you could do something to stop the pain? Well, Jesus can do more than wish. Verse 14, he touches the coffin and talks to a dead body. Now, can you imagine what the crowd thought? He touches the coffin and talks to a dead body. Now, a few years ago, I went to uh, Peter Christopher's father's funeral uh, at the Greek Orthodox Church at Hurlston Park. It was an interesting experience. Uh, One thing that was different was uh, everyone walked past the open coffin. So the coffin was down here and everyone got up and walked past, they filed past, and they said their goodbyes. Now, a number of people were literally doing that, talking to the coffin and and even touching the coffin. But no one thought Peter's dad was listening or that he would respond. And yet when Jesus does that, the boy was listening. You see, even death could not silence Jesus' call. The centurion said, just say the word. This is what Jesus, and that's what Jesus does. Young man, I say to you, get up. And the boy responds. (laughs) From wherever he had been, his spirit came back into his body, air filled his lungs, his heart started beating, his blood started flowing, his eyelids flooded, and verse 15, he sat up. (laughs) And he began to talk. I wonder what he said. Did he look at Jesus? You called me? Did he look at his mum? Oh, mum, you should see where I've been. I've got so much to tell you. 
and verse 15, Jesus gave him back to his mother. He used to belong to her, uh, but then she lost him. But Jesus found him and had authority over him and brought him and gave him back. And the crowd are amazed. Who has Jesus done this miracle for? Well, she's done, he's done it for the mother because she's lost, she's least, she's alone. But she's great in Jesus' eyes. Now, this is the part of Jesus' ministry that John the Baptist has forgotten or misunderstood. Uh, back in chapter 3, perhaps you remember, he preached that Jesus would baptise with the Holy Spirit. He would come in judgement against sinners. He would come with a winnowing fork to separate the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad. And so John's message back in chapter 3 was for sinners to repent. But when he preached that repent message to King Herod because he was sleeping with his brother's wife, Herod threw him in prison. That's chapter 3, verse 20. And that is the last that we hear of John, stuck in prison until now. So there he is. He's been sitting in prison. He's been thinking about Jesus. He's been waiting expectantly for Jesus, the judge, to come with his winnowing fork. He's been waiting for the day of reaping, of reckoning, when the unjust and the powerful will be punished. When people like King Herod will get what they deserve. And John and the rest of the righteous will be released. Literally, in John's case. And John kept waiting and waiting. But all he was hearing was that Jesus was enjoying himself. Eating and drinking. Healing. Setting undeserving people free. Where is the judgment, thinks John? Where is the retribution? And so that's the question his disciples ask in verse 20 when they come to Jesus. Are you the one or have we got it all wrong? Now notice what Jesus says in verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Jesus loving the least, the lost, and the last. Yes, they are all things that the Jews expected the Messiah would do when he came. You can read about them in passages from the Old Testament, like Isaiah 29 and 35 and 61. And yet, as you read those passages, there's a note of judgment in them as well. Wonderful release, but also judgment. Listen, for example, to Isaiah chapter 29. God is speaking to, Israel, uh, to Jerusalem in verse 5. So verse 5, he says, But your your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come, will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. And John the Baptist says, Amen. Now there's the judgment, but then a few verses further on, down in verse 18 and 19, we read, In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll 
and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Now there's the vindication and the deliverance. And they're both happening on the same day. Now notice the connection. The act of justice is the punishment on those who deserve it, but it's also the restoration and the vindication for those who suffered, who've been punished unjustly. The truth I think Jesus is saying to John is that the Messiah will bring both sides of justice. John's mistake is that he's focused on one. He's focused on the judgment. He's forgotten the deliverance. But not only has he forgotten the deliverance, he's also got his timing wrong. You see, John wants to see judgment now. He wants to see King Herod and all the other wicked people be punished now. But what we see with Jesus is that mostly judgment is delayed. Even for the worst of sinners, even today, mostly those who sin, their judgment from God is delayed until death. God in his mercy gives people time to repent and be saved. Now that's the time we're living in now. That's the time when Jesus was here. He is saving. We are seeing the vindication and the deliverance and the restoring. We're seeing the healing and the setting free. And that's the great message that we share with people. Jesus is just. He will judge. But from that same justice, he will restore and lift up the weak. He will forgive those who repent. He will free those who are trapped. From Jesus' justice, he loves the least and the last and the lost, which is all of us, and it's great news. But even though John misunderstood, Jesus says he's great. Perhaps some in the crowd are saying, yeah, I knew that John was a a rotten apple. I knew he just got Jesus completely wrong. That's why I'm no longer... And Jesus says, no, no, no. John is actually, he's great. He's the greatest of all prophets because he got to point to me. But then notice what else he says in comparison. We read it earlier. Sure, John is great, but even the least in the kingdom of God, is greater than John. The loneliest, the poorest, the sickest, the weakest, if they are in the kingdom of God, they are greater than John. Why? Because they're blessed. They've seen and responded to Jesus. They've accepted his healing and forgiveness because Jesus has cleaned their heart welcome them into his kingdom, remove their guilt and their blindness and their blackness. If you are a Christian, then that's what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus says you are great in his kingdom. You are precious, loved, welcomed by Jesus, the friend of sinners. So how do you respond to that? Well, 
From verse 36, we see a perfect model, a perfect example to follow. Uh, From another of the least, this time a sinner, a lost one. Uh, From verse 36, Jesus goes to dinner at Simon, the Pharisee's house. He's respectable. He's got the right connections. He has a nice house in a nice part of town. He is a worthy one. But then a visitor appears. All we're told is that she's a sinner. But she understands more of being loved by Jesus than this respectable Pharisee. She's heard Jesus speak about clean hearts, about new beginnings and fresh starts, and she, she's amazed that that offer would include someone like her. And she's overwhelmed with gratitude. She hears where Jesus is having dinner, so she arrives with her most precious possession, verse 37, an alabaster jar of perfume. In verse 38, she stands behind him, quietly weeping. Tears of gratitude and joy. Years of her selfishness and sin, years of her mistakes and guilt, bitterness and regret. But Jesus welcomes her anyway. And the waves of emotion and relief flood over her. And the tears fall. But then she notices her tears have landed on Jesus' feet. He's seated on the floor. He's reclining at a low table and his feet are facing away from the table. And he sees her tears on his feet. She's making a mess. His feet are dusty. They haven't been washed by Simon. And it's making mud and She gets flustered, she she looks around for something to clean his feet with, but there's nothing there, washing feet, Simon's not very good at that. The only thing, thing she can think of is to use her hair, long and flowing, and she wipes Jesus' feet. And then as a sign of her love, she kisses them, now clean. And then she cracks open her expensive perfume jar and pours the perfume on his feet. Put yourself in the place of one of Simon's dinner guests. Feel the awkwardness of this. Feel how inappropriate it is and extravagant and unexpected. But feel also what a beautiful sign of repentance and gratitude and love it is. She thinks, who cares what other people think? Jesus has given me a new heart. He's a friend of sinners. I don't deserve it. Is that your declaration? Who cares what other people think? Jesus has given me a new heart. He's a friend of sinners and I don't deserve it. Certainly Simon doesn't think much of her display, verse 39. All he sees is a sinful woman getting intimate inappropriately with Jesus. If Jesus really was a prophet, 
he'd recognise who she was, he'd do something about it, he would reject her, he'd cancel her. Instead, Jesus turns his attention to Simon, verse 40, and he tells a story about two men, one who's forgiven a huge debt and one who's been forgiven a small one. And obviously, the one who's had the greatest debt forgiven will love the most. And he applies it to Simon and the woman. Verse 44. You, Simon, didn't offer me water for my feet, but she's wet them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Therefore, she loved much. But he who's been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began saying among themselves, who's this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Saved by her faith, which means she's forgiven, so she loves deeply. Welcomed by Jesus, the friend of sinners, while Simon, the acceptable and worthy one, misses out. So the message of this passage is that Jesus loves the least, the lost and the last. Those who are great, uh, those are the ones who are great in his kingdom. Those who consider themselves unworthy, like the centurion. Those who respond in repentance and gratitude and love and joy like this sinful woman. Jesus is a friend of sinners. That's great news for you. How will you show your response to him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he meets us in our low state. He knows our hearts and welcomes us anyway. May we respond the way this woman does, with gratitude and generosity and emotion and thankfulness. Not just with jars of perfume, but with lives offered in obedience and love and loyalty. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.